Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Father, as we contemplate the words of Christ, we pray that you would preach them to us and apply them to our hearts through the power of your spirits. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at our text, you can see that it's brief, and I think I can make a promise to you here at the outset that this is going to be a a brief sermon. There's going to be uh, some inspirational content, some emotional uplift, And one simple point that if you apply it, you will leave here feeling good about yourself and about the life that you're living. I promise that to you, but in return, I ask for a promise, which is that you promise to pay attention while I'm speaking and to apply yourself. If you can promise that, then I think I can promise what I promise as well. Can we make that agreement, that promise together? Yes? Excellent. That's wonderful. Oh, but wait, what's this? I'm holding my arm behind my back. And as I pull it out, I find that my fingers are crossed. Kids, you know what that means? If somebody holds their hand behind their back with fingers crossed when they make a promise, what does that mean? It means they don't have to keep it. Aha! You made a promise and you have to keep it. I made a promise and I don't because my fingers were crossed. There's a life lesson for you. The way this stuff happens in books is so much easier. If you're reading a book or watching a movie, the epiphanies are so clear and definite. They they happen at a certain moment. There's a realization, a lesson that a character learns. You can even hear the, the voice inside their head. And that was the moment when I learned that you can't trust anybody, not even the pastor, perhaps especially not the pastor. You can't trust anybody, even when they promise to do something, perhaps especially when they promise to do something, when they give their word. In real life, it's harder to remember when we learn these lessons. As I think about where I would have first grasped that concept, it must have been on the playground at school as a kid. During that phase that we probably all go through when you're kind of fascinated by the idea of, of promise making, you're extracting promises from other people, guarantees about their behavior. Some kid approaches you on the playground and says, I will promise not to hit you if you will promise not to hit me. Now, kids, if anyone ever comes to you and, and, and offers to make a promise like this, you should be suspicious. Because why are they thinking about this in the first place? But in my innocence, I wasn't as suspicious as I ought to have been, only to discover that, that the person promising not to strike me has his hand behind his back and his fingers crossed, so he's not bound by the promise he can hit me, and I can't hit him back because I didn't know 
how to get out of your promises. It's crazy when you think about that, how perverse a lesson that is, one that we learned so early that you really can't trust people to do what they say they will do. That people will stand face-to-face with you and they will make commitments to you and they won't keep them. Sometimes they'll make commitments to you that they have no intention of keeping and to seal it, to reassure you, they'll actually promise, they'll swear, they'll make an oath, a kind of guarantee that you can believe what they're saying. Because that's the whole point of swearing an oath. That's the whole point of making those promises. It's because you know you can't trust people to just do what they say they'll do. And so in order to have some trust, you ask for a little bit more of a commitment. You say you're not going to do this, but will you promise that you're not going to do it? Are you sure? Will you double promise? Will you swear that you will not do it so that I can believe that you actually won't do what you say you won't do. That's the logic of extracting promises, oaths from people. It's because we know we can't trust them on their own to do what they say they'll do. But then we also know this, that oaths can be tricky and that people can make them in a certain way where they don't feel obliged to keep them. So even when a person makes a commitment to you and even when they seal it with a promise, with an oath, Even then, they may not keep it. In fact, sometimes you begin to suspect, especially then, they have no intention of keeping it. I realize these are simple lessons, things that we all learned a long time ago. But oftentimes, the things that we learned too early, we don't reflect on enough. We don't see the significance of these things. You realize that it's common sense that you cannot trust people to keep their word. It's common sense that people will make promises to you without any intention of keeping them, if you reflect on that reality, it tells you volumes about the condition of the fallen human hearts. It tells you volumes about who we are and what we are really. That we accept that sort of thing as the norm. says everything that you need to know about the corruption of sin, if you sit with it long enough and think about it. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaks these words. Just a handful of sentences. He calls us to what we might call true commitment. He calls us to be the kind of people who, when they say yes, mean yes and do yes. And when they say no, they mean no and they don't do what they say they won't do. At least this one's simple. We've looked at some complicated stuff. We look at murder and hatred. We look at lust and adultery. But now with oaths, it's actually pretty straightforward. This would be the easy sermon that I promised you at the beginning if we could just take these words and read them in a very woodenly literal way. We could just look and see that Jesus says, don't swear an oath. So that's the takeaway. That's the application. Stop swearing oaths. Stop making vows. Don't make marriage vows. Don't make membership vows. When you go to court and you have to give testimony and they say, put your hand on the Bible and swear, say, no, I won't do it. My yes is yes and my no is no and I refuse. It's as simple as that. Do that. Stop taking vows, making oaths, and you can be a righteous person. Unlike murder and adultery, where corrupt desire 
makes the heart guilty before we've even acted. Here it seems to be as simple as not raising your hand and saying, so help me God. Finally, something we can do. But it isn't actually that simple. So we read the Bible literally. We take the words literally, but not always, because we read the Bible the way it intends to be read. If the Bible intends to be taken literally, we read it literally. If it intends to be taken figuratively, we take it figuratively. The point is to hear what the Bible is saying as it's saying it. That's good interpretation. I was looking through Kids Chronicles from last Sunday. Kids, do you have your Kids Chronicles? You're working feverishly on these. Last Sunday, there was a question for kids to answer, and it was, what did you learn during the sermon? There was like a line underneath where you could fill it in. Personally, I didn't think there was enough room to list everything. Just the one line didn't seem enough. But I was looking through Youth Chronicles, and I saw one of the lessons that one of you learned last week, and it was that we should read the Bible literally. And now I'm going to make that a little complicated. I take comfort in the fact that that when he wrote that, he didn't spell literally, literally. He actually spelled it pretty figuratively. And uh, so there you go. We read the Bible the way it intends to be read. We read it the way the author used the language, right? We read symbols as if they were symbols. We read the concrete stuff as if it's concrete. And we always read everything in context, And context is important here, but in two senses. First, there's scriptural context. We read every scripture in the context of all of scripture, because the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is scripture itself. And therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold, but is one, in other words, it all means the same thing, it all goes together, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. That's the Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 9. That's the way we read the Bible. We look at other scriptures. We read everything in context. There's another context that matters, though, and it's cultural context. How did the culture that these words were first spoken to receive them? How did they understand what Jesus was saying? What did they do as a result of what Jesus taught them? So the question is, why isn't it as simple as just reading this passage and saying, Jesus says oaths are sinful, so just don't swear them, and we're done? Why is there more to it than that? Well, for one thing, the first hearers didn't interpret it that way. People didn't swear off all oath-taking as a result of this. In fact, you find in the New Testament apostles who are continuing to take oaths. In Acts 18, Paul himself is under a vow. Why would he do something like that if he'd been paying attention to what Jesus taught? Well, clearly, when he heard what Jesus said, he wasn't reading it, interpreting it in a woodenly, literal way, which actually makes sense because the Apostle Paul was aware of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, that God himself makes vows, that God himself swears oaths. He writes, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. If what Jesus intends here is just, hey, stop swearing oaths, all oaths are sinful, not only would he be rewriting the law, which is not what he's doing here, but he'd also be condemning the Father, which is definitely not what he's doing here. So we have to ask ourselves, what's going on? Remember, 
Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't correcting the law of the Old Testament. And he's also not updating it. What he's doing is he's reestablishing the full scope of it. He's showing us that as we inherited it and as we interpreted it, we really let ourselves off the hook. We really didn't take on the full significance of what the law says. So in light of that, we have to see that what Jesus is doing here is a little bit different than what it might seem. He's not abolishing promise-making, oath-taking, or covenant-making. Obviously, he's the son of God. But what he is doing, once again, is revealing to us all of the accommodations necessary to justify the hardened heart. All of the things we do, the, the depths that we stoop to, to do terrible and sinful things and go to sleep at night telling ourselves we're actually not that bad. So cultural context helps us focus a little bit as well. If you flip forward to Matthew 23, Jesus speaks on this topic again in more detail in a denunciation of the Pharisees, whom he calls blind guides. And specifically, the thing that they're doing that that he targets is this playing around with oaths. They're distinguishing between what promises you have to keep and what promises it's okay to break. If you want to, you can flip to Matthew 23 and see all the examples. I'm just going to give you one. It turns out the rabbis would tell you something like this. If you swear an oath and you swear by the temple, that one you can break. That's not binding. That's okay. Gives the impression that you're binding yourself, but if all you did was swear by the temple, you're good. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you're bound. If you swear by the gold of the temple, then you definitely have to fulfill that oath. So what the rabbis are doing is they're providing people with a pretty sophisticated legal framework for knowing when you can make a promise and break it, and it's okay. What promises can you break and still be righteous? Jesus denounces this as sophistry. Like, this is like the the worst practice of the worst trial attorney ever. The way that they are treating this idea of integrity, of truth. These rationales that they give for breaking oaths, for teaching people to cross their fingers behind their backs, Jesus says you're blind guides to treat people that way, to teach them to abuse the truth in that way. The way that they dealt with oath-taking in Jesus' days led one commenter to note that oath-taking became in practice more often a means of avoiding what was promised than of performing it. That you took an oath so that you could get out of having to do the thing that you promised to do, not so that you would have to do it. You're probably not listening to that and thinking, wow, I'm glad we've progressed since those days. I'm glad that now when I sign a contract, I know that the insurance company feels as bound to what they've committed to as I feel that they are bound. Wow, thank goodness we've progressed since then. I know that when I enter into a treaty with some other government, they intend to respect my boundaries just as much as I intend for them to be respected. And you chuckle to yourself and realize, no, things haven't changed that much at all. I mean, the people you worry most about betraying you are the ones you've signed a contract with. 
as a person who recently bought a car, it's still raw to me. Like, you can't go through the process without feeling at every turn you're being exploited, without believing that every time somebody says something really positive and good, they're lying to you. But that's the way that it feels, and it feels like a system that was created so that we can deceive one another and still feel justified. And in response to hypocrisy like that, which we take for granted, Jesus preaches absolute honesty. He says, be the kind of person who always fulfills what he promises, who does what he says he will do, and who doesn't do what he says he won't do. Be the person who doesn't have to be trapped by an oath in order to keep faith with other people, in order to fulfill his commitments. Be the kind of person who's not looking for ways out of what you've committed to actually do. So that's an ethic of radical honesty. But it's more than that. It's an ethic of true commitment. Because an oath isn't just about telling the truth. It's about keeping faith with someone else. What Jesus is talking about here isn't just don't lie. It is stay true. Stay true. Be true in your commitments. Speak the truth, Jesus says, but also stay true to the commitments that you've made. But of course, he's saying this to people who have failed magnificently at true commitments. That's where we find the common theme here. The Sermon on the Mount is not just random teachings strung together. You can see a progression, why Jesus mentions one thing in connection to another. You think about his teaching on murder and then adultery, they're tied together by his teaching on, on the human heart. It's the corruption of the heart, not just the action, that makes us liable to judgment. You see the connection between his teaching on adultery and divorce. Both are concerned about breaking faith on, on what it is to commit adultery, to be unfaithful. There's a connection, too, though, between his teaching on divorce and his teaching here on oaths. Because both of those have to do with the hardness of heart, the way that we seek legal cover to do sinful things. In the same way that 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 bill of divorce is a way to follow my corrupt heart, but tell myself that I'm squared with God. Breaking an oath that was only made to the temple and not the gold of the temple is a way of violating my promises and still maintaining a sense that I am just in the eyes of God. That idea of legal cover is what ties these things together. It's not just that promises are being broken, it's that the breaking of promises is being justified through a doctrine that teaches that some vows don't have to be kept. And if you think on that, it brings us right back to the despair of the playground, that realization that the world that we live in is, is slippery and untrustworthy. Can you really trust anyone? In a fallen world, we're surrounded by people who are holding one hand behind their back. And you can never tell if their fingers are crossed. You can never tell if they will do the things that they say they will do to your face. Worse than that, though, as much as you resent the people who break their word to you, you do it too. As much as you hold it against them, that they're not truly committed what they've said to you, you too break your word. You too wiggle out of the commitments that you've made, which makes it worse. 
and break our own commitments, even as we suffer from the broken commitments made by other people. That's the dilemma that we face. The logic of the oath reveals to us what you might call the dilemma of living in a sinful world. The reason you want to know in the first place is to make sure the promise is kept. And that suggests a reasonable fear that people won't keep their promises without some sort of guarantee. And then people seek ways to make guarantees and not have to keep them. If it weren't for sin, we wouldn't need oaths. If it weren't for the hardness of heart, we wouldn't look for them from other people. But because of that reality, because of the way that we abuse our word in this way, we recognize that we are all hypocrites. We're surrounded by hypocrites. Paul says the law is a school teacher, but if the law is a school teacher here, it's teaching us a really hard lesson. It's teaching us that we can't rely on other people any more than we can rely on ourselves, that all of us are compromised by hatred and lust. Our hearts are hardened. We yearn for others to be true, even as we are false to them. And that is our condition. That is the reality that Jesus is speaking into. And if you look at that and you say, but he does give the answer, the answer is just to let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's the application, surely. Well, here's why the answer isn't the answer. Have you actually tried that? Have you actually tried to do what Jesus says here? If you think the answer is just to renew your commitment to honesty, to be one of those plain-spoken people who just keeps his word, try living that way and see whether you feel like you're justified. See whether you think you're doing it well. It's actually hard. It's hard to keep even the commitments we intend to keep. And it's easy to tell people what they want to hear, to tell them we'll do things we know we not only won't do, but cannot do. But we tell them that we will, because it's easier, right, than to tell them the hard truth. It's very difficult to live as Jesus calls us to live. To let your yes be yes and your no be no sounds so easy and is actually so hard. It's actually because we can't live this way that oaths were invented in the first place. So in a sense, it points us back to this vicious cycle of trying to commit ourselves, trying to live as people who don't need to be tied by oaths and then failing and then wishing there were some way to make the oaths work. As you reflect on that cycle, though, as you return to this idea of like, like, what is the purpose of an oath? What is the need for an oath, the guarantee, a promise? As you return to that idea, you'll find a new value in it. Once you've followed Jesus's train of thought, you'll see there is something to be said for making promises and keeping them. But instead of putting your trust in the oath sworn by men, you'll be putting your trust in the oath sworn by God. That makes all the difference. Because God's commitments are always kept. And Jesus keeps his promises. When Jesus gives us the objections to the oaths that are being sworn, it's really interesting to think about what they have in common. Just don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, don't swear by Jerusalem. Why not? Because you don't own them. Because you don't control them. Because they belong to God. All of those are on God's side of the ledger. 
under his control, under his power. Fine, okay, those are off the table. I will swear by my own head. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't control that either. You can't control whether your hair is white or black, whether it goes gray or falls out entirely. You're literally grounding your trustworthiness on something you have no power over, no control. Your word is empty because you don't have the power to keep your commitments because your heart is weak. It is unfaithful. Your oaths don't make it better because there's no strength that you can appeal to. There's nothing that you have power over to confirm or guarantee your word. But the same thing that makes your commitment so brittle makes Jesus's commitment to you solid, stable, airtight, absolute. Where your word is empty, his word is solid and secure because his heart is truly committed to fulfilling everything that he said. Your yes isn't yes and your no isn't no. But Jesus' yes is yes to the nth degree. When Jesus says yes, it is yes utterly. Fulfillment will happen if Jesus says it is so. Where your oaths add nothing to your commitment, his add everything to his. His covenant gives us complete assurance. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The things that God predicted, the things that he said he would do thousands and thousands of years ago and still hasn't done, those things are as certain as if they had been done. Because when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. He always fulfills his word. To put it another way, God's fingers are never crossed. When he makes the commitments, he keeps it. There's no fine print in his contract so that he can wiggle out of his promises to us. In Jesus, we find true commitment. So let all of those who are in Jesus strive to be true to one another. Let's keep our commitments like he does. Let's deal honestly and openly with our neighbors the way he has shown us to do. Let's not be subtle. Let's not seek to mislead others, to lure them into a sense of security, to make them think one thing when we intend another Don't live that way. Don't let people think that you're committed when secretly you're letting yourself off the hook. But where you fail, and you will fail, where you say yes, but you live no, then let these words of Jesus come back to convict you and to remind you that you're not trusting in your own righteousness for salvation. You are trusting in his commitment And his commitment will never fail. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.